Hello. Hi, Serena. How are you? Great. I'm watching the movies and the supplementary material. They're amazing. Oh, wow. That's great. Well, I also have a PowerPoint version, but it's way too big, I think, to for people to access it. Hi, John. You want to come up? Hey, John. Good afternoon. I'm in multitasking listening mode, but I didn't want to ignore you. <laughs> well, this is, uh, this was, this paper really amazed me. I'm glad uh, Dr. Rupert can come and present it to us. It um, seems really groundbreaking. The the supplemental supplemental videos of the paper are amazing too. Definitely recommend checking those out. Could you repost the uh, original paper? Oh yeah, yeah. Let's, I just um, added in the chat. Um, feel free to check it out. It's a it's a bio archive, so. You can just access it, everyone can access it. Slides look really good too. Of course, I'm going to be biased and excited about astrocytes at any rate. Hi, Leanne. Hi, everyone. Uh, we will start in around seven minutes, so thank you for coming. I hope my background noise is not too bad. Hi, Leanne. How are you? I'm great. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, this is going to be a good one.
Serena, I haven't seen you for a while. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. How are you? I'm good. Just uh, enjoying the last week before the start of classes. Just um, going for a little walk oh, along wow. the ocean and looking forward to the talk. Some beach time, some master site time. It's all good. <laughs> I've seen a few really interesting papers about astrocytes lately. One came out in Nature just a, uh, like last week um, in a similar direction about establishing astrocytes as computational units. It's a very welcome trend. Hey, Dr. Olu, do you want to come up to speak? Feel free to come. Hi, Peter. How are you? I hope everything is good. Thank you for coming. Hi, Katarina. Nice to hear you. Hello, Peter. Hello. So glad you could make it today. This is going to be a fascinating talk. I'm Thank sure. You. Thanks for Oh, yeah, of course. Thanks for coming. It's a great honor having you. This is such an interesting topic. Serena is an absolute fan. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. I've, I've just been, um, well, I. I won't even say borderline obsession, but I've been obsessed with digging into astrocytes and their function for the past few months. And um, I saw this this uh, preprint um, conjunction with several other papers on astrocytes and their role in actual computation. Um, so I'm really excited to hear what you uh, you know what you have to say today, and I'm sure we'll have a lively Q and A. Yeah, that's good. I think that uh, there are many recent papers on astrocytes and their role for computations. I think we can also discuss some other papers as well. If you're interested in the in the aftermath of the discussion of this paper. Well, certainly. The videos in the supplementary material I was just telling the audience earlier, they're really, they're really uh, amazing that you, you know, brought all that data together in, in coherence and. Yes, in, I, I agree. I would also say that the, the supplementary movies are maybe the most interesting part for newcomers because they really show how it looks like to do the experiments and how the data look like. Yeah, and just staring at the movies, you know, it's just like, are we looking at what this little mouse is thinking of at the time? <laughs> how do we do, how do we understand what what component is, you know, what's really being represented? So, you know, it's just it's fascinating stuff. Yeah, also at the same time, it was a big challenge. I, I started um, imaging neurons when I was um, doing my PhD, and. In the beginning, I always ask myself, okay, I see some blinking 
in your sense of what does it mean when it is very difficult to relate it to some cognitive stuff. And of course we can do this partially, but there's so much uh, unexplained variability that you don't know how to explain it. I think it's really interesting and unexplored. Yeah, you can really get caught up in in just trying to interpret it, and uh, but it's um, it's so compelling. Yes, I think this is what I'm presenting now in the following hour is maybe one aspect of astrocytes, which is I, I think very central. But there are many other activity patterns of astrocytes which are not described by this approach, but with, which would be described by other approaches. I think it's just maybe the first order description of what astrocytes are doing. Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely. I think we can slowly start, right? Um, so people will keep dropping by, but let's just start with the introduction slowly and then go from there so welcome everyone to science society and of course a special welcome to dr peter ruprecht um, who will be uh, talking about his research here today and uh, before we start with that let me give you a little bit of um, information about our speaker here today um, peter grew up in germany and um, he's um, He's a second son of a carpenter and a kindergarten teacher. He, um, after he did um, his high school degree, he did his civil service. So I think it changed the last years, but back then in Germany, you, um, as a male, you had to either go to military service or you could um, do civil service um, instead going to the military in a hospital. He did that in a hospital. And after that, he studied physics in Bayreuth, um, Germany and Lyon, France. After his master's thesis in 2014, he started his PhD in neuroscience with zebrafish at the Friedrich Miescher Institute in Basel. And um, he, for his PhD, he won an award, the Ruth Shiki Originality Prize for thinking out of the box. And he continued uh, to work in neuroscience as a postdoc uh, with mice at the University of Zurich um, since 2019. And only last week, he got awarded a Swiss Ambitione Fellowship which will allow him to start his own lab at the University of Zurich in next year, 2023. And in his spare time, uh, he reads a lot, enjoys nature and writes um, on his blog. And I shared the link to uh, Peter's blog here in the chat. So it's a great honor having you here and congratulations to your uh, award that you won recently. <laughs> Thank you very much. And if it's okay with you, Serena will ask you like a couple of interview questions first, and then uh, the stage is yours for your presentation. Sure. Thank you. Thank you. So yes, um, so we're really happy to um, 
have you here and and share this topic. But uh, what we generally like to do is get for the audience benefit, uh, have get to know you a little more about a person. So we have a couple of questions and I want to start with, uh, was there a time early on in your life where you it really became clear that you want to get into science? Mm, that's an interesting question. I don't think, think that uh, being a scientist is a profession, but I think it's rather a state of mind. So when I was around mm -hmm. 13 or 14, I really started to read a lot to better understand and know about the world. So I would say that I was a scientist from this point on. In the beginning, I was rather interested in language and music, and then I moved, moved to psychology and philosophy and ended up in neuroscience. But I think I was kind of science, interested in kind of science and understanding the world from this point on when I was 13 or 14. But I didn't have this picture in my mind that I was would become a scientist and work in a lab. This coming came only very, very late. Mm -hmm. Well, that's interesting. Um, so at the time that you did that deep dive into science, um, take us from that point to where you where where we are and to the work that you're going to present today. Okay, that's a long trajectory, I would say. So, hmm. when, so coming from psychology and wanting to study neuroscience because this kind of underlies psychology in some way, I, I thought about how to study neuroscience. And I realized for myself that to study neuroscience, you have to really understand methods and um, how to analyze data and to work quantitatively, that's why I studied physics for five years. And afterwards, I felt prepared for doing real um, science and neuroscience. And I looked out for, for um, labs, which uh, did the same, had the same um, kind of physics mindset, which means um, thinking about very simple experiments which could resolve very maybe tricky questions easily instead of just making a large catalog of things which are in the world as biologists do sometimes. So that's why I joined this lab in Basel. And at some point I really um, was more interested in singing cells and singing neurons and how they as some kind of organisms behave and learn about the world and this is something I wanted to study when I joined my current lab in Zurich. However, this was changed by, by some circumstances because um, a few months before, before I wanted to join, a PhD student in the lab, he died from an accident. And so my, former, so my um, PI asked me to take over this project. And in this case, I couldn't refuse and that's why I Worked and started to work on astrocytes. Actually, I hadn't wasn't so much interested in astrocytes before, but since this was due to this unfortunate event, I started to work with astrocytes, and then I became became really interested in their role in um, information processing. Yeah, that's kind of the story. It's kind of not a straight line, to be honest. Oh, wow. That's a complex web of events indeed. 
Well, at this at this point, um, we can uh, we can launch into your material for the audience. We've linked your slides at the top. The original uh, paper is uh, in the chat, and I want to call out again the um, fantastic movies in the supplementary material. So. I uh, encourage everyone to check that out. But at this point, Peter, the, the floor is yours. Um, Peter, just, um, could you, is there a way for you to make your voice a little bit louder? Maybe you could move closer to the microphone or... Um, the, for us, it sounds fine, but I think in the audience, usually the, the audio is a little bit lower. They, somebody, people say it's a little bit low, the, the voice, if it's possible. It's not impossible. Okay, okay. Is, is it better now? Yeah, that's much yeah, better. Thank you so much. Okay. Okay, I just um, took the wrong microphone. <laughs> okay, let me start. So, um, okay, so for the first slide, so it, the title of this uh, talk was um, set by Katarina, so thanks. It's about kind of astrocytes as computational units. So I just want to define some, some words. So astrocytes are a specific kind of non-neuronal cells in the brain. So these are not neurons. And um, there's some kind of clear cells, which were um, called like this because they glue the brain together. That was supposed to be their primary function until this has been changed more recently during the last 20 years. So computational units, computation means basically well-defined information processing. And the most important part here is unit. The unit mean, means it's an entity. It's, it's not about uh, the distributed processing in the single compartments. So like in a swarm of birds or in molecules that comprise a liquid like water, but it's central processing in the in the soma of the astrocyte, similar to neurons. So that's the main idea of the, this project. Um, so I was always interested and fascinated by neurons and information integration from dendrites to the soma. So it's obvious that such a power, that such a central integration is very powerful and makes neurons the computation units of the brain. So in our paper, we found that astrocytes in the brain can be recorded as computational units, the brain as well, and that they integrate information about past events, and that this information depends, that this integration depends on what happens to the animal in general and what happened to this astrocyte specifically. So let's go into the um, slides. Let's start with slide three. So what is known about astrocytes? This is a very course background slide to give an idea. So astrocytes have receptors for almost any signaling molecule, be it um, glutamate, lactate, um, noradrenaline, dopamine, anything. Therefore, it's not surprising that astrocytes respond to many different things like arousal, movement, neuronal activity, synaptic activity, and so on. At the same time, it is known that astrocytes act upon synapses, neurons, blood vessels, and so on. So they are influenced by many, many factors and they act upon many, many factors. So it's very 
difficult to really define the role because they have many roles and it's not clear whether they exert these roles directly or indirectly. So more recently, as Serena has mentioned just before the talk, astrocytes have recently been shown to be involved in neurotypical computations like coding for sensory, sensory stimuli or the representation of locations. I think this is a very recent development. So this has started maybe 15 years ago. Now it has become quite um, common, but we can discuss this maybe more in more detail after the talk, because I, th I think this has, should be looked at very with a very skeptical mind, because if you say that an astrocyte codes for a sensory stimulus, how do you know that this coding for a sensory stimulus is not just inherited from neurons or from arousal or from movement, which means there could be an, a direct effect from arousal, which seems to be an effect for of representation. And if you say that something codes or represents something directly, I think that's a very um, bold claim which we have to support very strongly. But let's go back to the um, paper to slide number four, where I want to compare neurons and astrocytes directly. So from neurons, we have our, as humans, we have 10 to 20 billion in our cortex. From, for astrocytes, we have almost the same amount, like five to 15 billion. Neurons form long di distance connections and they integrate synaptic inputs, basically from the distal dendrites, so the, which are far away from the soma, to the soma itself, the cell body. They produce a threshold output, which is called the action potential, and that's kind of the synaptic integration in neurons. Astrocytes, on the other hand, they form only local connections with other astrocytes, and activation patterns seem to be distributed within a single astrocyte. And there's a activity pattern over there and then there and there, but it does not seem to be um, correlated or orchest orchestrated. So there's no obvious principle of signal integration described so far. But um, here I want to des describe exactly what we see in hippocampal astrocytes. So the next slide, slide number five, I want to describe the methodological part. And I think this, this is maybe also would become a bit clearer if you also look at the movies from the paper, because they show you how this mouse actually looks like when it is um, sitting under the microscope. So what we did here is we use a mouse, which is head fixed under microscope and moving on a linear treadmill. So like the treadmill that you can use in the gym, very similarly, just that it's head fixed and not fixed with the hands. At the same time, I, before I have um, implanted a window in the, into the brain, as you can see in the middle, it's basically a cavity where we remove a tiny part of the cortex, like three millimeter in diameter. And instead of this cortex, we insert a metal cannula and at the bottom of this cannula, we have a cover slip. It's kind of a window into the brain. 
if we look through this window with a microscope, which we actually build ourselves, looks like on the right hand side. Basically, you can see the bright spots are the astrocytic cell bodies, and the blur mass around it are the fine processes, which we cannot resolve. So the activity patterns of these astrocytes are shown on the bottom in this blue and yellow um, color plot. On the x-axis, you see time, and on the right, bottom right, you see kind of a very slow process. There's 20 seconds timescale. On the y-axis, you see the different astrocytes um, and their time processes. As you can easily see, most of the astrocytes seem to be active simultaneously or almost simultaneously. That's the first interesting observation, which is consistent also with previous findings in cortex. On the, the next slide, you see, for example, how we define a single astrocytes. And, and as you can imagine, this is not a very satisfactory analysis because you basically manually draw a region of interest around one soma of an astrocyte. And you have to kind of guess from activity and the morphology how astrocyte looks like. So um, when you go back to slide five, you can see that some of most of the astrocytes seem to be active at the same time. But at the same time, some astrocytes are kind of active earlier than others. And this was an interesting finding because this seemed to be consistent. So for example, if you can zoom in, so if you have this on your laptop and not on your small smartphone um, screen, you can see that astrocyte number 85 is consistently earlier active than the rest of the astrocytes. So we wanted to understand this in a very unbiased way. And this is something I will describe in slide seven. So this is kind of an, a very complicated method. So I'll walk you through this, but I will promise this is also quite interesting. So what we did here in slide seven, you see a global trace of activity, which is averaged across all those astrocytes in the field of view. And then we compared this global trace with the activity of, of each single pixel trace. So for each pixel, we compared whether the, the pixel becomes active earlier or later than this global activity pattern. So we did this basically using correlation functions, which is a tool from physics, actually. So I used here my physics background. And in, in addition, we could not, would not be able to do this on raw movies as shown on the left, lower left, but we denoised the movies. To this end, we used an algorithm on deep self-supervised networks, which basically used the knowledge about the morphology and typical patterns to denoise the movie and get rid of this shot noise. So this is um, two very interesting um, um, computational methods, which enabled us to um, analyze this data set, which has not been done before. And the result of this analysis, you can see at the bottom right, it's basically a, a 
a kind of delay map. So for each pixel, we compute whether it's later or earlier active compared to the average. So in yellow, you see the pixels which are active earlier than average, in blue, the pixels which are active later than average. I hope this is um, kind of clear to you. And if not, um, don't hesitate to ask you, ask me, because it's, I think it's very interesting method. And um, basically, I think that many labs have previously acquired the same data as I did here, but they didn't observe this finding because they basically didn't know how to extract this observation from data properly. And on the next slide, slide eight, you can show the finding, how this looks like across entire field of view. So in bright, you see these astrocytes, the fluorescence average. And on the right-hand side, you see this kind of delay map. And if you go forward to slide number nine, you see that um, here I manually painted some, some circles around each astrocyte. And this clearly shows that in the center of an astrocyte, which is the cell body, the delays are positive, while in the periphery where the, the process of, of the astrocyte resides, delays are negative. So what does this mean? In simple words, it means that the calcium signals which we observe here propagate from the distal processes, which are far from the soma, to the soma. I think that's a very um, cool analysis because um, this is something you cannot see if you just look at the movies. So for example, if you look at the supplementary movies from the paper, it looks really clean and so on, but these effects you cannot see just with the eye. You have to do some analysis and average across the entire recording. And I think it's this clearly shows the power of such um, methods. In slide 10, you see just another set of examples which shows on the left in black and white the morphology of an astrocyte and to the right the corresponding delay method map, which shows that the soma is activated later compared to the distant processes. And I think this is a quite um, a striking and interesting finding because it shows that astrocytes don't process information just in, in some fine compartments, but that these uh, these signals from the distal compartments are propagated to the center. And then they activate the center and trigger some other programs. And this is something which hasn't been observed systematically before. So I think it's a very um, important finding to understand the role of the function of astrocytes. So it, it's basically a very simple analysis if you want so but it's also, I think it's very important. On the next slide, slide 11, it becomes a bit more um, complicated. So here in, in um, 
there are, on the right hand side, you see a couple of traces in time, and which is basically a fluorescence signal. And in, in yellow or orange, you see the trace, which is from the periphery. And in blue, you see the trace, which, which is from the soma. So on the left, top left, you see basically a, a trace where the activity propagates is, is small in the distal periphery and it's large in the soma, which means it propagates from distal processes to the soma. The same for most of these examples, but in the lower um, row, you see three examples of um, events where the activity is high in the distal processes, but not in the soma. So which means the activity from the distal um, processes does not propagate to the soma. So it's not the same as observed previously. And um, this was interesting. So basically to sum up this finding, I saw that there's a propagation of calcium signals from the outside to the inside of the cell, but not always. Sometimes this doesn't happen. So I wanted to understand when does this happen, when does this happen not. And so in slide 12, you see what I did to understand, to study this systematically. So basically this slide is, is very crowded, but the message is very simple. So what I did is basically to systematically record a lot of other things which were going on, which is basically simultaneous um, neuron activity in the same brain region, the hippocampus. And I recorded the pupil diameter, which is an indicator of neuromodulation, like from noradrenaline. So even for a humans, um, if you're aroused because you're excited or you um, like this dish in front of you or something like this, your pupil also gets dilated and larger. So it's an indication of neuromodulation. Then we also recorded the mouth movement, the licking and the paw movement and the running. And then we systematically studied these effects and tried to understand in which behavioral conditions do these um, astrocytic events from the distal processes propagate to the soma, and when do they not? And we found very strikingly that if the pupil diameter is large, which means when the animal is aroused, the event propagates per 100% from the distal process to the soma. This is shown in, in slide 13. But we also found that if the pupil diameter is small, which means when the neuromodulation is slow, low and the arousal of the animal is not very high, then this propagation does not happen so often. And we could also explain the rest of the variability with cell intrinsic factors, but I won't go into this detail. I think that's, that's a very interesting finding because it shows that the astrocytic activity propagates from the distal uh, compartments to the soma only when the arousal is high. So to sum this up on slide 14. So together we found that um, astrocytes are slow 
the craters of past salient events. So astrocytes integrate signals from the, the processes to the soma. So it's, it's very similar to neurons, which propagate the voltage from the dendrites to the soma to elicit an action potential. And similarly, we found that astrocytes integrate signals from the processes which were, which were elicited by, for example, for, from neurons pro processing some information to the soma. We also observed that this occurs on a very long time scale. So neurons operate on a time scale of milliseconds or tens of milliseconds. Whereas this um, mm, slow integration in astrocytes occurs on a long time scale of approximately five seconds, which is very, very long. And which is also very interesting because this is a time scale on which behavior matters. So if something happens five seconds ago, it is important to know about this because it, it, I can learn from this. So for example, if um, uh, you ring a bell and five seconds later something happens, I think it's important for me to associate this distant event with this current event. So we also find that astrocytic signals reflect past events. And we find that only salient events are propagated. So to, to sum this up, we find that astrocytes are computational units. And with the computational units, the stress is not on computational, but it's on units, as opposed to distributed and independent compartments, which has been thought previously that astrocytes would be more distributed information processing systems. And, and one, one idea that we that's very obvious in our eyes is that this together, the slow integration of past salient events, which we con call the conditional centripetal integration, uh, calls for a potential role for astrocytes and neuron plasticity. So why, why do we think this? So for several reasons. First, this integration occurs on a long time scale of several seconds. And we know from, from other um, studies in hippocampus that neural plasticity happens on this time scale in vivo. So if you look at slices, for example, you have this very short time scale plasticity, like spike timing dependent plasticity. But if you look at living animals, you see a different plasticity rule, which happens on a time scale of seconds. And astrocytes could play this rule. And second evidence for this is that astrocytic signals reflect past events, according to our analysis. And third, only salient events are propagated. And this makes a lot of sense because we should only memorize and remember salient events, not the boring ones. So together this um, makes us believe that astrocytes could be a potential mechanism to integrate salient events and, um, and um, trigger neural plasticity. So on slide 15, you can see just um, the people 
who were directly or indirectly involved in this project. This is the lab of Professor Friedhof Hemkin, University of Zurich. And uh, with this, I'd like to thank you for your for listening, and I'm happy to take a lot of questions, hopefully. Yeah, thank you so much for this wonderful presentation. And it's so impressive how you figured out which signal comes first, because that gives us so much more information about the computation. So congratulations to this amazing work. And um, yeah, please, everyone, if you have questions, um, flash your microphones. And um, so what? So let me just go ahead, because um, I, I'm really interested in the timing of these uh, signals. So why do you think it starts in the more distal regions? Um, how, how do you think um, the network, um, how does it affect the network of astrocytes? Is it kind of more, because it's kind of the opposite of a neuron, like, you know, broadly speaking. So that's really interesting. So. What, what do you think, it, how does it affect the network um, if the signaling works that way in astrocytes versus neurons? I think the idea that, that which is also quite um, accepted is that neurons, uh, that astrocytes, they're full, small processes, they wrap around neural synapses. So only these um, tiny synapses, they feel basically when there's a glutamate transmission from a synapse, and then we assume that these tiny process of, processes of astrocytes are activated and only locally in these very fine processes, which we cannot resolve. And then there's basically, in our picture, a gating variable, which comes from neuromodulation. And only if this gating is basically activated, this activation from the distal processes, which is wrapped around the synapses, can propagate to the larger processes. So I think this um, timing is a just a consequence of how astrocytes react to neurons and a consequence how they wrap around synapses with only their smallest processes. So do you think they play kind of a more amplifier role or just a connecting role um, of connecting the network further? or um, more kind of or probably also a regulator or amplifier like did you see that they can kind of um, uh, tune down the signal like can they can they tune actively down the signal have you seen something like that with your imaging so this is very difficult to study so i mean if they can tune down the neuronal signals I think how you would you study this? So you can basically switch off astro astrocytes, but this is the same as if you basically remove all the walls from a building. Of course, it crashes down. So it's I think astrocytes are a fundamental part of the brain, and so they cannot be just removed. And then you can look what is different. This always has some catastrophic effects. So it, it's it's not not clear what effect they have. And um, there's so so you could use optogenetics, right? There are um, tools now for glia optogenetics, and then um, just yes. um, use like a photon or laser to activate specific 
you know, specific astrocytes, like silence them. Yes. And the then only... you could see, I, I'm not sure if you could see maybe a difference in up or yes. down regulation. The, the only problem is that optogenetics does not work for astrocytes. So basically, astro optogenetics is basically you have some, you pump some ions in or outside of the, the cell. And it has been found that for astrocytes, this does something totally different than for neurons. So it basically does not activate or inactivate the astrocyte, but for example, it changes the pH or does something totally different. And it's, um, so this, this is basically, if you use optogenetics to drive astrocytes, um, it's not clear what is going on. And Do you use uncaging of an inhibitor of astrocytes or you don't crumble, like the whole system is not crumbling down, but just where you uncage um, your um, inhibitor? Yes, this has been done, for example, with um, so-called designer drugs. Maybe you're familiar with DREADS. So these act on a slower timescale. And um, they basically use um, G-protein coupled receptors to inactivate some signal pro signaling processes. But um, more recently, there, there has been found some evidence that um, if you use this inactivation of um, astrocytes, actually the calcium signal goes up. So this is uh, very unexpected. And this just shows that we don't have really the methods yet to study this properly, to be really honest. I think there have been many studies published which used methods like this, but um, there are now a lot of question marks um, around this so perturbation. Could you patch astrocytes and use um, some, you know, calcium um, capturing stuff in the yes. and I think that's maybe one of the best methods and it's very clean. So I'm, I'm planning to do this, but you can do this only for single astrocytes and it's very tedious to do in vivo. You can easily do this in slices, but in slices you don't have you don't don't have any of these events which I'm seeing. So you have you have to do this in a living animal where the brain moves a lot, and then patching becomes difficult. So I, I have before patched in in neurons um, of um, of anesthetized animals, which is um, feasible. But once the animal really moves, the brain moves up by ten or fifteen micrometers. And that's uh, really challenging to um, get a proper seal under these conditions. I, can, I think you can imagine. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, it's really interesting your work. It's um, so. And uh, Serena, please go ahead. Thank you. Well, thanks. Uh, it's such fascinating work um, and really, uh, you know, wonderful experimentals bringing all that data together. I'm curious. Um, and you know the time scale and the behavioral, you know, time scale is 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 very suggestive. Um, so in terms of the centripetal propagation, uh, when it gets to the soma, do we have an indication um, of the information flow from there? What are the consequences? I think that's an excellent question. Um, I think that's the was the main difficulty because for neurons we have the exon which is clearly the output unit of mm -hmm. the neuron. And for astrocytes, you don't have this. 
I think there are many theories what will happen, which is called the clear transmission hypothesis. And, um, and the idea is that astrocytes emit something like, for example, glutamate or lactate or D-serine mm -hmm. um, to activate neurons. However, these molecules are difficult to study because we don't have um, very good sensors. So there are some labs which, which are developing these sensors, but we don't have yet the resolution um, to really pinpoint at fine processes of astrocytes and say, okay, that's released here. But that's clearly, uh, this triggers really, um, our work really triggers this question very st strongly. I think there's, um, my hunch would be that um, DCRine would play a big role because DCRine has been shown in slices to be emitted from astrocytes. And DCRine is a co-agonist for, for NMDA receptors, which are basically the main receptors responsible for learning in neurons. So I think this could be one very promising pathway. And there, there's a lot of work going on, which really tries to prove this. For example, um, the, I think there's some really nice work going on in the lab of Christian Heimelberger in University of Bonn, which tries to sh show this link very directly. I think that's very tedious work because you have to exclude all confounding variables. But I think that's a very pro promising avenue of research. Certainly, um, and yeah, in, in, in reading the consequences. Um, well, let me just ask one last question and we'll give more of the people on stage a chance uh, so I can keep talking about this for a while. Um, the qu question of the, um, the, the syncytium, the calcium propagation through gap junctions and, and your time delay methods and delay maps, yes. do you, do you find that, um, you know, there's the, the non-local wave extended propagation from astrocyte to astrocyte within the time scale that you're looking, or That's are you a, really just seeing the centripetal integration? That's a very, very good question. So I think this question maybe is triggered because um, like 20 years ago, when people started to study astrocytes using calcium imaging, they saw these waves um, all over the place especially they were using slices or cell cultures. And then they saw these waves happening all the time. And um, when people started to move to in vivo preparations, they didn't see these global patterns. And when, when, I, when I look at this um, delay map, as you have noticed, we don't see this um, kind of wave-like propagation on this time scale. And we don't see it on other time scales as well. So I think, so I believe that this um, propagation as a wave through gap junction is not very prominent in vivo. I think it might happen from time to time, but I think it's not um, the way how calcium signals are transmitted in vivo. I think the reason why there's such a global activity pattern in these astrocytes is more that the axons from neuromodulatory axons for which are emitted from the locus cerulaeus, for example. They have a very um, a correlated activity patterns and therefore they activate the same astrocytes all over the place, hippocampus. 
And that's why we think there is this coordinated activity. But we believe that this, um, there's no such thing as a global wave propagating through the tissue. We saw, I saw this a few times, but in each of these times, this was due to very bad conditions, kind of like inflammation or other um, extremely high laser power, which triggered kind of this um, non-physiological calcium wave. Wow, that's a big result and a big question. Um, certainly want to come back to that. Um, so Wisdom, I saw you flash your mic. Uh, do you want to ask a question? Yeah, um, I, I had a few. Um, I, I, I tracked the, the Helmchim lab uh, really closely, uh, this preprint. I, 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 got, I got to glance at this preprint that I think uh, is the, the heart of the presentation you brought up. Uh, and uh, there's another preprint on the dendrite work happening in the lab that couldn't be more relevant to my work. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, a, a big interest of what's going on in your lab. Uh, but uh, I, I do have a, a mouse on the bench. Can I ask you some like shorter questions with follow-ups? Would that be okay? Sure, sure. Um, so when you're talking about uh, calculating the timing of the calcium signals uh, centripetally, are you um, doing uh, segmentation of the, the body, the cell bodies of these cells, and then analyzing what a neuroscientist would call neural pill, I guess we'd call it astral pill uh, in this case, or are you segmenting the processes of the, the cells? Yes, very good question. So I'm doing nothing of those both. So I'm using a very unbiased approach Basically, I'm analyzing this timing for each pixel and in an unbiased way, totally unbiased. And then I'm looking at this uh, de delay for each pixel, which I compute from this collation function method and compare it to, to the morphology, which I know from average fluorescence. So I, I think using these um, manual segmentation methods that you suggested would be a bit misleading because most of the processes of an astrocyte you cannot resolve optically. That's why I resorted to this unbiased method using pixel-wise um, um, analysis. And of course, this was only possible because I had denoised the movie before. Otherwise, for a raw movie, I would just get uh, very no noisy results. I hope this addresses your question. Yeah, yeah. I was wondering how much uh, overlap there was with some of the analysis going on in the, the dendrite work in your lab. I know there's, uh, they've been doing some reconstructions and, uh, you know, fine process segmentation in neurons. Um, but, uh, it, but it sounds like your denoising method does try to take uh, advantage of what is known about the morphology, if I, if I heard you correct. And by the way, sorry, my hands are occupied so i'm i'm sorry uh, if a lot of this is easily answered in your slides but um the other thing i was going to ask about was um so how much how much is no it's some of this got answered in in your answers to the previous questions it sounds like these signals you suspect are synaptically driven um, yes. But I'm curious how much is known about the distribution, the synaptic distribution subcellularly on these cells, and also like distributions of the um, 
the gap junctions whether do you know anything about this those spatial relationships yes um this is a good question um i don't know whether gap junctions are somehow their position is location is correlated with the synaptic locations this is something i don't know i don't think so because i gap junctions are between two astrocytes and synapses are between one astrocyte and two neurons and um, the distribution of synapses so for each astrocyte we, we assume that there are something like 50 or 100,000 synapses so i think it's all over the place but only the fine segments the ones which we cannot resolve unfortunately so all the all the processes from astrocytes which you can see optically with light microscopy, this is not where the important stuff, the, the synaptic um, transmission of neurons is, go, is happening. Okay, so I, I have two more quick ones. Uh, the other question I had, you, you mentioned, and again, I apologize if this is easily pulled from your preprint or the slides, mm -hmm. but you, you mentioned something about simultaneous imaging. I'm assuming you're doing something like, uh, you know, something red shifted in, in the neurons or in the astrocytes? Um, yes. Um, this is something so, I, mm -hmm. Sorry, go ahead. The question is, uh, did you see any correlations between uh, the, the spatial patterns in the neural activity and the spatial patterns in the astrocytic activity? Or was there any correlation there? Is it, um, in other words, is it, is it, all right, go ahead. Um, so we recorded astrocytes and neurons from different layers, so they were spaced by 100 micrometers apart. But there's another publication which showed that there is no correlation between those. However, we found there is no correlation between the average activity of neurons and astrocytes. But there's, if you look at the delayed effect, there's a delay of something like four seconds. Then if you look at this delayed correlation, there's a high um, a correlation between those two signals. So basically there's a neural activity and four seconds later, there's a strong astrocytic signal. So this is, we see on average, but we don't see this um, um, on a single cell level. And we can also cannot say that this is causal. We also think that more likely this has a common origin from the brainstem. Right, yeah, maybe you could do like noise, noise correlation analysis or something to try to get closer to that. Um, so the, the last question I had was, um, forgive me, this is out of ignorance. Um, what, what is known about the time course of signaling in terms of calcium versus voltage? But what I'm wondering is, uh, how much can you determine about, you know, bi-directional signaling, like, uh, you know, whether um, the signal is actually originating uh, from the soma or, or distally? Okay, that's, an, that's an, a good question from a neurocentric perspective. So here, what we measure is calcium concentration. And um, it is known that um, astrocytes are not excitable. So they don't really use voltage or active voltage channels to propagate signals. And therefore, people assume that, most people assume that uh, voltage is not so important for signaling astrocytes. So more recently, so this year, there has been a one paper which showed using a voltage sensors that there's something going on in distal processes, 
but even then it's assumed that voltage signal is not so important and um, it's not maybe not so interesting to look at voltage signals and for um, so it all this I think the question arises because there's this in neurons that is back propagation action potential and so on in astrocytes this this does not take place there's no active conductances and everything is so slow that you would be able to observe it yeah yeah i, I actually asked because i didn't want to make that assumption um so it, it sounds like like you're you're saying there's no evidence for active processing in, in these cells there's some evidence for some active processing in distant dendrites from this year so this has to be confirmed but i think it's nothing major yes okay thank you sorry for taking your time and thanks for spending time to share your work with us thanks for the questions so uh, we can go if, if you have a question um you can flash your mic i barbara i think i saw you flash your mic earlier I was just splashing in agreement, so I'm good. Thank you. Okay. Are there other questions? Question actually for Peter. Peter. Uh, yeah, I, I, this is John. I just have a really naive question. Gender differences uh, in your research? Oh, Let me, okay, let's um, answer Barbara's question. So I think you, you asked about gender differences in my these are results. No, so, um, so I, I did this um, work uh, mostly with male mice, but also I think two or three uh, female mice, and I saw basically the same thing going on in both mice. So I think this is something which um, I think this is, a, this is a very first order effect, which is very obvious. So I think I'm not surprised that it's the same for female and male mice. But I could um, imagine that there's some minor differences when you look more closely. For example, it is very obvious that male mice behave very differently from female mice. They're usually more aggressive, they're more quick, quicker to learn something, but also make more mistakes. And uh, they're a bit more difficult to handle and less anxious. So there are, there are many differences on the behavior level which are obvious. I think this would surely reflect somehow indirectly in the astrocytic activity as well. But I don't think that astrocytic activity drives this differences. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Appreciate it. John, do you want to? Yeah, did, did I understand you correctly? You said there's between 50 and 100,000 synapses per astrocyte. Did I hear you correctly? Yes. <laughs> Um, so um, that that I, I'm I'm not a, a neuroscientist, but um, that raises some really really interesting computational questions about staging of processing, simultaneity of grokking fifty thousand potential inputs uh, or a hundred thousand potential inputs into a single cell. Um, are 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 there any early hypotheses about how a single cell, obviously not all 50,000 synapses are firing simultaneously, um, yes. but clearly the capacity for a very diverse set of signals arriving either near simultaneously or in some sequence that means something different than a different sequence. 
are there models for how to reduce the complexity of that um, massive uh, uh, input uh, network into a single cell um, that have been tractable experimentally? Um, I think not. I think, um, so, but, but I can tell you what I think about this problem. I think it's a really, really good question, which um, way too few people in the astrocyte field are asking themselves, because I think it's um, an obvious question and it's, you ask yourself, what, if, what, what could this be good for? And um, one idea I had was that maybe, so when a synapse is active, it basically contributes indirectly to this, this activation of the soma. And it could be that the synapse is thereby, by its own activity, kind of tagged. And once the soma is activated five seconds later and emits some, for example, DCRN, which potentiates synapses, this tagged synapse could be activated. So it's basically, this could be used to, um, that there's no, no, if we look from the soma activation, it does not propagate to all the synapses, but only affect, affects those which had been active before. This is one way I could imagine how to deal with this huge complexity and diversity of inputs by tagging them by activity. So this is just one approach to um, think about it. Yeah, I mean, you, you could think there are two sort of polar uh, strategies uh, across a spectrum of strategies. One is um, in a particular uh, localization of the astrocyte, there could be some edge computing across the different receptor types, or there could be a central summation, and at the other end would be a central summation uh, of all of it relatively simultaneously and and somewhere in between those two is that there's some you know cross receptor type edge computing uh, anatomically uh, localized um, not anatomically spatially sorry spatially localized within the cell uh, I mean there's just so many different ways that problem could be solved for both yes the the variable types of receptors the variable location of those receptors on the cell the the localization within the cell i mean the the number of strategies that could have evolved to um, manage that information um, pretty pretty diverse and complicated and seems like it could have a significant um, reveal in terms of neuromorphic computing um, and and biomimicry in the uh, in the digital space. Just curious if you have any thoughts about that. Yes, you have you've brought up a very interesting point that you brought up. You mentioned two different strategies which the astrocyte could use to compute, basically. And um, I think it's um, or even more than two. And I think the the answer is that um, it will be just more than one strategy. I think probably the astrocyte is using both strategies because from my experience, um, biology is very messy. It's not engineered and it uses just any kind of complexity to 
do whatever it needs to do. So I think it's, I, I could well imagine that it just uses both the same time, maybe even somehow mixed. So I think it's, I'm not sure how to implement such messiness in neuromorphic engineering devices. I think that's a very good question. Yeah. You know, it'd be interesting to do some reverse biomimicry and look at how these problems are being solved in, in the IoT, Internet of Things. Um, okay. Uh, yeah. It'd be, be fascinating to see how people are thinking about the equivalent problem um, in uh, sensor integration across a huge network where there's uh, localization of multiple different signals available but there's aggregation centrally as well. So uh, it, it'd be really interesting to see the, the digital analog of that and then use that as a probe into the biologic analog of that. That's a very interesting thought. Oh, thanks for sharing. Thank you. Um, so I'm just going to try and understand it out loud and please correct me if I'm wrong. So, um, um, the brain and effort to um, crunch a lot of analog signals into more efficient processing, it sort of makes shortcut pathways for repeated signals. And um, uh, I think of it like if I'm trying to think of how to make that efficient, instead of trying to store individual timestamp data points of your time series of signals, you just store like a freq uh, like a record of all the frequencies. So uh, it, it tells you like I've, I've got 10, frequ 10 signals of this approximate intensity um, over the last, the lifetime of that pathway. So um, I, I'm just trying to understand, is that like the role of astrocytes to get these analog input signals and sort of keep track of incoming signals, but also inform neurons that are doing the calculations of what the um, average value is and what the instantaneous value is relative to those average values while also updating this record? That's a very, very engineering perspective. <laughs> it's funny to hear it put in this words. Um, let me think about it. Um, so you ideas that um, basically astrocytes could be described as integrating past events and then basically um, using this um, average um, cross time or smoothed um, signal and feedback to neurons. I think um, this could be one role for astrocytes. I think it's um, um, but I guess it's not maybe not the entire thing. I think there there's more to it because um, astrocytes are so closely involved in the regulation of synapses and neuron plasticity. I think there's more to it. Just um, computing the mean or or some, some other statistics over the past events, I think that would be a bit too simplistic. And I think you don't need um, 15 billion cells in the cortex just to do this. I think that's something you would do with a neuromodulation signal, which is globally emitted. And there are some circuits for this purpose. Oh, thank you. And um, what, sorry, uh, I'm sorry, if that's, it's a follow-up question, please go ahead, John, I can wait. No, go ahead with your follow-up because mine is a follow-up to my question. So go ahead and complete yours. Uh, so um, I, what's the role of calcium um, and in the astrocytes and what calcification, I think it's called? Um, what, what's the role? That's a very good question. I think it's um, not fully understood. So 
Um, people have been convinced that calcium, for example, in the soma triggers some molecular cascades, which uh, lead to the release of some neurotransmitters like d -serine. Um, so that's why people assume that uh, calcium is a very important signaling molecule, also for other cells like neurons or other cells like um, heart cells or muscle cells, calcium is um, very important. So that's why people thought it's the central signaling molecule. But more recently in the last um, one or two or five years, there has been also some processes described in astrocytes which are important which do not depend on the calcium concentration. So I think there is um, more to it than this, but in general, I would say that it's the most important signaling molecule to activate some molecular signal and cascades. And just one last quick one. Uh, you mentioned that voltages were part of the signaling, but like a minor part of the signaling. So what is the major, uh, how does the signal, how is the signal transmitted? What if not voltages um it's transmitted not not by it i think it's transmitted by molecules which are for example which are released by vesicles into the extracellular space that's the main uh, route of transmission and are these the same or similar neurotransmitters or neurotransmitter molecules um, that we expect in for example neural synapses not only it's 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 some of those yes but there are additional ones like lactate or um, deserine or some atp these are, these are um, many much more diverse than for neurons for neurons it's usually usually one transmitter per neuron which is effective and for astrocytes it's a huge variety uh, okay and just one last quick one um so there was um an ex experiment where you take a plant and um, you drop it, um, say a touch me not, and uh, like make it fall like a height of two feet, and um, and you suppose you do that every hour. The 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 say the plant visibly curls up when it's being dropped from from a height, um, and then the first three if you do it every hour, then after the first few hours it starts to um, curl up even before you've dropped it because it's expecting that input and expecting to do a defense, and then. After a couple of times of doing this and realizing that it's not getting hurt, it stops curling up at all anymore. So, um, it, uh, would you say that this mechanism of how it figures things out is similar to ast do plants have astrocytes or what's the sort of equivalent that does that helps them do this function? Oh, that's that's a very um, I would have to look into this. I I really don't know to be honest. I think that's an interesting observation. I would have to look it up. I, I if. If you if you're really interested, you can send me a link to this observation, and I can can look at it and write you back. But I think from without knowing much, I cannot really tell. Sorry. But uh, is is it um, is it exclusive to mammal brains, for example, or do you find astrocyte astrocytic things in even simpler neural nervous systems? You see, see it also in simpler nervous nervous system. Even in insects, you have some precursors of astrocytes, which look differently, but they have some similar functions. So these are, this is um, to some extent conserved across species, but only I think since reptiles, they have this um, astrocytic morphology with this star-like shape. Okay, thank you so much for taking my questions. You're welcome. Yeah, I, I have another naive question. So. Um, 
to what extent do you have um, any sort of proxy metric for computation itself? And is it possible that computation is um, detectable from a uh, energy consumption or redox kind of uh, uh, chemical transaction? And if you have the ability to look at the energy expended in computation versus transmission, would that be an interesting probe into um, whether, to what, ex to what, not whether, but to what extent computation is done at the edge versus computation is done more centrally or at every step along the way? Um, is energy expenditure something that is a potential proxy for disambiguating those options. That's um, something I haven't thought about so far. It's an interesting point. Um, just one one clarification. Um, so the computation that I'm observing here in this study is basically very simple. It's the computation, it's sigma transmission from the distal process to the soma, and which is transmitted conditionally only when arousal is high. This is the computation I'm observing here. I'm not, not observing something very um, like computation of um, input signals or location or something like this. But to your question, um, I think it's um, very difficult because um, energy consumption in biological tissue can be measured using ATP as a unit because ATP right. is yeah, that, that's what I was assuming you would look yeah. at. Yeah. But at the same, there are some, I think some groups have now developed some ATP sensors. They are not very sensitive, so it's not very nice. And another problem is that um, astrocytes also use ATP as signaling molecule. So just to mess up everything. <laughs> so it's, it's, I think it's very difficult to quantify. And then you have to account for something like volume to sur surface to volume ratio to account for um, whether processing happens on membranes or in the volume. I think that's very, very tricky. And for the, from, for these astrocytic processes, we cannot resolve them. Even with super resolution microscopy, they're too tiny. So we cannot really study this in vivo right now, unfortunately. But it's a, a good question. I just don't know how to address it. Thanks. Thanks for the question. So I'm curious. Um, I mean, your data presents the, um, you know, the multi-second centripetal propagation quite quite well. Um, in some of my readings, I've come across uh, some faster processes, and I'm curious about, well, let me pose it as um, if in the role of, of de uh, de-searing release and plasticity, the um, with 50 to 100,000 neurons, I'm, you know, I'm imagining that the origin of the distal stimuli are forgotten by the time that that propagates to the soma. But in the sense that deserine or other glial transmitters may affect uh, synaptic plasticity at the distal processes, um, is there a faster time process that, that could be occurring that 
that uh, that you could discuss. Um, I've also heard uh, or read that um, astrocytes are involved in theta rhythm, which should be much faster than the time scale that that you're looking at. Um, any any comments on any of the more local or or feedback uh, coupled loops to the synapses at a faster time scale? Yes, I think there. Are, I think there there might be. Um... So about first about the slower time scale. I think if it goes over the soma, I think it will be a slower time scale because the soma activation happens through diff diffusion, and diffusion is always far slow. Mm -hmm. And I think this um, you mentioned that you assume that this the memory about these processes which happened before is forgotten at the synapses. I think this must not be the case. Does doesn't have to be the case. I think there there are models of synaptic tagging which could um, make the synapses memorize what happened a few seconds before. Mm. I think there's some evidence from um, neuronal recordings, for example, in um, there's from, um, can type in the, in the chat, from um, um, four years ago, actually. So would it then be um, the sort of another question in terms of if the antecedent, so you, know, you mentioned that there isn't clear causality, but uh, presuming that the synaptic activity um, initiated or it was at least correlated with the origin of the distal calcium waves toward the soma. Yes. Um, in terms of any uh, feedback that may occur, would there be a mechanism to jump to synapses that weren't part of that original stimulus, but happened to be in that right place at right time that they got the benefit of the association between arousal driven by the norepinephrine uh, and the and the the calcium integrated signal, you know, you know, for that region and time. In other words, is there a way for activity of synapses in one area to affect through these astrocytic processes um, synapses of other neurons that are in the area within the, the tiled pattern or the region of the astrocyte that weren't necessarily active at the time? That's an interesting question. I think this could be the case. So this is something is not covered by our experimental data, but I think this could be the case because there's some local activation um, of some internal cascades, um, cheap protein coupled receptors to um, mm -hmm. noradrenaline, and these um, basically re release internally in stored um, calcium. And so there's, there's some local amplification loops where uh, signals um, which are received from synapses, for example, could be amplified using this um, neuromotivation or noradrenaline. And this could indeed also affect these local synapses spatially. The reason why I think I'm hesitant to follow up on this is because in hippocampus, it is known that neurons are distributed um, basically randomly. So the tuning of neurons, which are approximate close to each other, they are not co-tuned a lot. So I think it would be a good 
um, following up on your question, it would be interesting to see whether synapses which are closed are actually, actually correlated because synapses are not distributed in the same manner as neurons. So I think it would be an interesting study, but however, I think it's very challenging to study synapses. Mm -hmm. And um, in terms of the heterogeneity of astrocytes, I mean, you're studying CA1 area of the hippocampus, yes. where you, you had uh, three layers, I believe. But the, um, you know, in astrocytes are, are, you know, widely distributed throughout the brain. Um, do you think these, uh, is there an indication that their roles may be different in, in uh, you know, say in the cortex regions, for example? So my hunch, I don't know for sure. So if I look at um, calcium recordings from cortex, I mostly see very similar things. So I think it's very similar things are going on. However, there have been some reports that, for example, in prefrontal cortex, astrocytic activity looks a bit different. It's not these global patterns, but very more distributed ones. So there could be some different things going on. And it holds especially true for subcortical areas, which is, um, for example, the brainstem, the spinal cord, and so on. I think the, mm -hmm. or the cerebellum, I think there are different things could be going on. I think all of them, most of them are similarly modulated by this um, neuromodulation. But uh, I think how they interact with neurons could be very different. That's um, clear. And I think there's a, a huge uh, open question mark about this heterogeneity. Because, you know, some of the really interesting work that involved the, you know, syncytium and propagation, were, um, you know, was regionally focused. And I don't believe it was all sliced. It's curious question and a big one if, if the importance of, you know, multi-astrocyte syncytium type dynamics is a regional and computationally specific type of, of role that that isn't present in the hippocampus. That would be kind of a fascinating thing. Yes. I think it um, will probably is very similar in some regions of cortex, but I think it's um, without this um, cortical layers in, for example, striatum, I think maybe there's something totally different going on. I think it's, um, yeah, it's a good point. So there are, are there other questions from the audience? Lisa? Um, I was, uh, just a quick question. I was wondering about the the details on uh, how you express the, the GCAMP sensor? Was it um, targeted towards specific cells or was there an effort for sparsity? And um, just curious in terms of, and if that is the case, I'm just curious how many cells you were looking at relative to, um, you know, how many astrocytes would be there. And then the, the last question is, um, if you, did you see, uh, a variety of responses and and if so how many of you know percentage wise how many of the cells supported the the main result of the paper and these are good questions so we basically tried to use um, viruses to express um, gcamp um, 6s in all astrocytes using the gfap 
promoter. So it is known that this expresses also in some neurons, but we could identify those very easily based on their morphology and their activity. And when we looked at the GFAP staining using immunohistochemistry, we saw that basically all of the astrocytes in the field of view were labeled. So about the second question about the heterogeneity of responses. So we saw that some astrocytes indeed did not show this uh, sentry pattern propagation that we observed in most astrocytes. And we haven't, um, so this, this kind of outlier astrocytes we saw um, in, in some of our field of views. In others, it was not really clear because the, if you don't have the soma of the astrocyte in the, in the imaging plane, it's unclear whether you're really um, imaging an astrocyte or which part of an astrocyte you're imaging. But in a few cases, we could really clearly say, okay, this is an astrocyte and this astrocyte doesn't show this typical centripetal propagation. But a number on it I haven't done, I would say maybe 10 or 5% of astrocytes don't show at all these, this dominant pattern that we observe. Okay, thanks. Thank you. Welcome. Other questions from the audience? Yeah. Um... Um... Please. Oh, go ahead. Oh, thank you. Um, so uh, you mentioned that uh, we have troubles with res resolution of these signals. Um, just in your opinion or perspective, what might be the um, sort of scale that we should be looking at, um, even if it seems ridiculous right now, but um, how, how, um, how narrow should our resolution be ideally to really capture all this information? Um, okay, that's a good point. I think it's the, these fine um, processes, I think they are on the scale of maybe 500 nanometers or one micrometer. So it's very, no, wait, wait, let me, let me think about it. Um, I think it's maybe two or 300 nanometers if I'm right, but I might, might be wrong. I, I'm, and just remember that it's below the res resolution limit of light and light, which is kind of like 400 nanometers or so. And it's, I think it's below this, um, this region. And um, how can we resolve this? I think there, I don't see a way forward. So I'm basically trained with microscopy. So I, I think I have an overview of the available methods and I don't see how this can be achieved. Of course, we have um, electron microscopy, which you can use on fixed tissue, and this can give you some information. And I hope to see some, some analysis of astrocytes using volumetric electron microscopy data sets in the future. But for functional um, analysis, I'm not so sure how do we go forward. I think that's an open question. And I understand that your method uses um, a video, and um, I'm wondering, um... In terms of temporal resolution, I'm assuming because you have like a limited number of frames per second, you can only achieve so much temporal resolution. But um, in both in your case and in the ideal theoretical case, what might be the temporal resolution you'd want to get like all the information out of this? I think the temporal resolution we have, which is necessary. So there have been some studies which have um, tried to go to the limit. And in this case, we have uh, 
temporal resolution of 30 hertz. And we observe any processes that we can observe based on our spatial resolution are much slower. So on a time scale of, I think the fastest are maybe 200, 300 milliseconds, which is much longer than our temporal resolution. So on the temporal resolution, we are totally fine. The, the, okay, rate, limiting, the, the rate limiting thing here is the GCAM sensor. Um, I don't think so, to be honest. I think the rate limiting factor is really um, the processing by diffusion in the astrocytes. I think for some tiny events in the distal processes, the GCAM might be the, the limiting factor, but there are some, some other studies which show that it's not really the case. But, yeah, what you're saying is you think the GCAM sensor is fast enough, but you certainly, there's nothing optically or imaging wise you can do to go faster than the GCAM signal, right? I think like we could do, for example, GCAM 8, which is has a much um, faster rise time. So we mm -hmm. haven't done this. Um, this could be done, but I expect... But, but if, you're, if you're saying it, that the, the calcium signal is slower in the cell, then there's no need to. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yes. I think, I think there might be some small processes which are activated very quickly, but then these are very difficult to resolve. And then to be sure that this is a really a signal, not just noise, it's difficult. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I have a question. So we had a guest speaker here like weeks ago, Moritz Ambruster. Um, I don't know if you know his paper, uh, Neural Activity Drives Pathway-Specific Depolarization of Peripheral Astrocyte Processes. And um, so his work um, is mostly slice and, and culture, but he saw that these distal processes were mostly driven, you know, by um, potassium and um, that um, by action potential mediated presynaptic potassium efflux and electrogenic glutamate transporters. Um, yeah, again, this is easy to do in a slice, but then we will probably not so easy. But um, do, do you know about this paper? And um, because this could basically explain, you know, um, the, um, the activity um, that you see and that it starts kind of in this distal regions and it's potassium driven mostly. Yes, um, I know this paper. I, I have to say, um, I think it's, it's a very methods based paper because it's also very strongly based on this voltage imaging method. So about this, uh, you summed it up that uh, the main effect that the neurons exert on these distal com compartments are these um, potassium release. Um, to be honest, I cannot really judge whether this is um, because um, true or whether other models are true because um, there, are, there are other models which claim that um, um, molecules emitted from from our ions emitted from exons um, are responsible to, for triggering astro, astrocytic activations. But I, I think it, it could be could be very, very true. So I, um, 
I don't remember the details of the, the paper, but yes, I think this could be a link, the missing one of the missing links to explain why the distant process are activated first or how they're activated first. I think it's clear yeah, that I, it's go ahead. Yes. I think it's clear that it's synaptic activity, but so it's Katerina, I think you're you're cutting out you're a little matrixy, but I, I I remember that work too. And one of the takeaways was that the even the the release of glutamate into the synapse, um, there was a a voltage of about twenty millivolts at the astrocyte in the tripartite synapse and the voltage sensors uh, led to an influx of calcium and and I'm so I'm wondering if the mechanism there is just through the release the voltage difference and the influx of calcium and if the calcium wave could be initiated through that mechanism yes I think that's um, I think that's also okay now you you said it's glutamate yeah it makes more sense yeah I think it's um, probably true. Um, I think it's initiating the, the wave, but I think it also requires the neural modulation by noradrenaline because this also triggers some pathways which amplify this initial um, calcium triggered by the, maybe, maybe triggered by the depolarization. Yeah. Well, in that paper, it was more potassium um, focused. So you could probably block voltage-dependent potassium channels locally and, uh, and see if, if something changes. Okay, I think it's, um, yeah, I think that's always difficult because, in, yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, I think only technically there's a challenge because um, um, voltage-dependent potassium channels are everywhere without them, you don't have action potentials or no proper action potentials. So if you apply it just systemically, you would just block it out, um, would make a mess of the brain. So you would have to basically patch a neuron and apply these calcium, this um, potassium channel blockers locally to this very neuron, which is um, very challenging if you want to at the, sa at the same time have a behavior of the of the animal recorded. I think that's maybe the, the dream experiment to really nail this down, but that sounds really, really challenging. <laughs> yeah, is there a way to do uncaging with UV light uh, in vivo in some form? Yes, you can do uncaging, but um, but again, the, the spatial resolution of uncaging will be the determined by light and you cannot say, okay, I want uncaging happening in this synapse. So you don't know whether you're really doing this on a synapse or on some neural dendrites or some other things. Well, in, 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 in slice you can, but I'm not sure if you can do in vivo. There is this holographic um, way of doing um, this, but I'm not sure how well it works in vivo with you know things moving around. It would have to be in anesthetized animals. I think you could could do this also um, with a living animal. 
However, the for holographic activation or uncaging, you still have the the resolution limitation will be something like um, two or three or four micron in micrometers, which is um, which encompasses hundreds or thousands of synapses. So I think it's very difficult well, to. I, I did that and my supervisor at Sony Brook did un local uncaging just on specific synapses, but um, of uncaging of glutamate, you, you can do that. I can send you papers about it just okay. in slice, not in vivo. So in vivo, I'm not sure because you have a lot okay. of stuff you have to get through, but yeah. Uh, people have done it to measure like upstates and stuff like that. You can very precisely on a synapse and then five synapses and so on. Um, okay, sounds, sounds interesting. Okay. Yeah, I would be happy about the, to see the paper on this. Uh, this might be a, a bit of a basic question, but uh, is glutamate, for example, used in specific contexts or is it like used um, as just a signal level, or is it only for particular uh, signals that glutamate is used versus another neurotransmitter? And if it's if it's like used for a particular case, could you give, for example, what why would you use glutamate? Um, so glutamate is used mostly by neurons as a neurotransmitter which are excitatory, and inhibitory ne neurons in the mammalian brain use some other. Um, like GABA as neurotransmitters. And in addition, also astrocytes use um, glutamate as, um, as a cleotransmitter, basically. However, in this case, the role is not so clearly defined. I'm not sure whether this answers your question. Oh, it does, thank you. Uh, so, so uh, but is this relation like mu mutually exclusive? Is glutamate the only thing that's used to excite? And um, if, um, or does it have other uses as well? Um, that's a good question. I think it, it's used to excite um, postsynaptically um, or, or drive glutamatergic receptors. But it, in addition, it also is involved in, in long-term memory because there are not only um, the simple glutamate receptors, but, but there are also the so-called NMDA receptors which are also glutamate receptors, but they need some additional depolarization from the intracellular side. And once this happens together with external glutamate, then they can um, trigger some potentiation, which means a strengthening of the, of the synapse. So there's a role, secondary role of, of glutamate, yeah. And the other way around, um, are there other molecules that are used for excitation besides glutamate? Um, yes, for example, on if you want to activate some muscles, there is acetylcholine, which is used. It's just a different um, neurotransmitter. And in, in addition, of course, there are some other neuromodulators like dopamine or noradrenaline or serotonin. And these are not really the same kind of exciting um, um, neurotransmitters, but they also um, contribute to the excitation or inhibition balance of the network. Wow, that sounds incredibly complex. I think my respect for everyone working in neuroscience just went 5x. Thank you so much. Thank you.
Go ahead, Karen. Oh, no, I just wanted to ask if people had more questions um, because we've been going for one hour and a half, so Peter is probably late where in, uh, in Europe, so I just wanted to make sure we don't, you know, overstretch your patience. No problem. Well, so, oh, okay, just what, let me get a final one in. In terms of the balance of excitatory or inhibitory synapses, um, do, we, do we find a mix of them within the region of an astrocyte, implying that it could be either an excitatory or inhibitory initiation of the signaling that ultimately gets integrated? and sort of a magnitude of activity as opposed to the sign? Or are they fairly regionally specific? Um, so you're asking whether the astrocytes are specific for interneurons or um, excitatory neurons? For glutamergic or GABergic, either excitatory or inhibitory. Um, that's a very good question. I haven't thought about this. I think the, I know of reports how astrocytes respond to um, inhibitory and excitatory molecules, and I would assume that normal astrocytes would respond to both, because an astrocyte astrocytes basically tile the entire space in 3D, so they don't overlap with their territories. Therefore, I would assume that if there's a synapse um, inhibitory synapse, it would have to be covered by the same astrocyte, which also covers an excitatory synapse. But I don't know for sure, because I haven't thought about this before. Good question, yeah. I would also point out, I, I that's a really interesting question, Serena. I, I haven't thought about that either. But even, even if it were the case that they were perfectly selective for excitatory synapses, that doesn't mean that they the activity at an excitatory synapse couldn't uh, start a signaling cascade that ends up affecting inhibitory synapses, like, you know, maybe perhaps locally along a dendrite or something like this. So, so even if you did have precise selective targeting, it, it doesn't mean that only the excitatory synapses are going to be affected. Well, certainly, and I, and I think it is mixed if it's, if it's simply a spatial domain. Um, and what's interesting about integrating the signal over time is what you would be amplifying is the particular balance of excitatory and inhibitory activity that occurred at that time, which is its own kind of, um, which is a more complex signal to encode in essence, as it wasn't just the particular pathways of excitatory or inhibitory signaling but it was the balance of everything that converged on that region and and at the t at associated with arousal at the time that becomes the salient event that gets remembered that's a very good um good point yeah i think it would be very interesting to see how single astrocytes react differentially to inhibitory and excitatory neurotransmitters how this is integrated, I think that's, I think your, your summary makes a lot of sense to me. Any more questions? The audience? 
if not, I really want to thank you for sharing this work for us. It's a fascinating topic and uh, it's just an amazing presentation and analysis of the data and uh, very illuminating. So thank you very much. Thank you for your very good questions. I was really positively surprised by all these creative and interesting questions. So it was a really pleasure to be here. Thanks a lot for the organizers, yeah, especially. You. Oh, thank you so much, Peter. It was really a wonderful talk and such an interesting discussion. It was really, uh, really amazing. And I wish you all the best for your lab and that you get a lot of funding because <laughs> it's very inter important work to uh, better learn about the role of astrocytes and you develop this interesting techniques um so um yeah i wish you all the best and uh, well, we all wish you all the best for your lab and congratulations again and thank you so much and if you maybe have some updates next year with your new lab uh, please come back and um, um share your your um insights with us uh, that would be amazing thank you thank you very much Okay, uh, and thank you everyone for coming, for asking great questions. Um, if you like discussions like this, follow the club. Uh, we will have more um, uh, talks uh, this week. And we will have um, Dr. Pascali talking about 3D printed biomimetic artificial muscles. Then um, we have Dr. Gangnu are uh, talking about mutations that protect from cognitive decline and uh, Dr. Oliveira Maya is a director of um, the Chapalimu um, psychiatry um, department in Lisbon uh, and a friend and colleague of mine. Um, he will talk about goal director and habitual actions and uh, neuroscience uh, uh, studies. Um, and then on Friday, we'll have Dr. Michael Levine, uh, the lab um, that uh, developed the Xenobots and other really interesting uh, recent research. He will give, uh, he was here before, um, and he will give us new updates about what's happening in his uh, lab about bioelectricity, basal cognition, and more. And it's like even unpublished work. So if you want to here and get updates what he's up to in his lab uh, join us on friday and um yeah we will have um interesting discussions and again thank you so much peter this was really an outstanding um uh, discussion and, and and talk so we really appreciate it and um good luck for everything thank you okay we'll close the room in three two one bye everyone thank you thanks everyone